I encourage you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. The passage we're reading this morning follows the baptism of our Lord and the majestic announcement from heaven that Jesus is beloved by his Father. And right after the Holy Spirit descended on Jesus in power, the Spirit led Jesus to be tempted or tested in the wilderness. Matthew chapter 4, beginning at verse 1. This is God's Word. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But Jesus answered, but he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him up to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give to you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. Let us pray. Our good and gracious God, our Father, we come to you this morning and we ask that you would give us ears to hear your word read and expounded. We pray that you would give us hearts to believe your word and all of its fullness and glory and helpfulness. And we pray, Father, that you would make us willing not just to be hearers and believers, but also doers of your word wherever appropriate, as you speak to us today. Will you do this by your Holy Spirit? We know that you will, because we come to you in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage that we've just read is one of the most puzzling in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Satan boldly confronts the Son of God about provision in verses 1 to 4 when he tempts Jesus to take the easy way out of hardship. He then asks Jesus to try presumption in verses 5 to 7, where he dares Jesus to live carelessly and presume on Jesus on, on God's graciousness. His final idea is the ultimate perversion or twisting of priorities in verses 8 to 11, when Satan madly suggests that Jesus could have complete dominion in only a moment if the Creator would just bow for a moment to the creature. These strange, otherworldly confrontations between God the Son and Satan, a corrupt angel, raise questions that we won't even begin to answer this morning. Indeed, one of the chief benefits of a visiting preacher 
is that I can choose really difficult passages and know that your pastor will be around later uh, to answer your hardest questions. Nonetheless, there's so much to learn from this account. In fact, in, in reading about the testing of God's Son, Jesus, there's no limit to the number of, of lessons that we can learn. I don't want to say there's a, there's a moral to the story. There are a thousand morals to this history. Bishop J.C. Ryle, if I can mention an Anglican bishop in a Presbyterian church, uh, Bishop J.C. Ryle mentioned some of them. First, he says, what a real and mighty enemy we have in the devil. He is not afraid to assault even the Lord Jesus himself. People speak about demons and devils lightly today. He's presented as a, as a cartoon figure. In truth, he's a serious enemy. And that's because in the second place, if Satan is this bold with Christ, he is much more bold with Christians. Are you ever entertained? Are you, are you ever tempted to entertain uh, unloving thoughts about other people? Do you have trouble putting away dark desires that discourage you? Do you have shameful memories that keep coming back? Well, there's a reason for that. We have an enemy, and he's often tempting us to sin or trying to convince us that we cannot avoid sin. He's spreading lies, and we must know in advance how to deal with his temptations, especially those that we face regularly. Ryle says, there's no enemy worse than an enemy who is never seen and never dies. Let us remember every day that if we would be saved, we must not only crucify the flesh and overcome the world, but also resist the devil. Third, and this, this one's so obvious that none of you can miss it, but so important that I need to say it anyway, the whole purpose of Satan's temptations is to get us to sin against God. The business of temptation and sinning is, is very personal for Satan. He hates God. He wants all things to work uh, for, the, for the harm of those who love God. And so he's always trying to get us to sin, not in the abstract, but to get us to sin against God. He tempts us to deny our sin, to ignore our sin, to excuse our sin. But above all else, he wants us to commit sin. And that's what makes sin so serious. This is why Satan rejoices to see us arguing in our kitchens, selfish in driving our cars, careless in what we see on our screens, thoughtless as we form our friendships. It's because he wants us to sin that we must band together as a church, as a body of believers, be honest with each other, pray for one another, encourage each other that we would not be led into temptation, that we would not be easy praise to Satan. Fourth, we should remember that in our temptations, the one in whom we trust and in whose name we pray knows what it's like to be tempted. Surely that's the main point that we can learn from this passage. And, and the writer to the Hebrews reminds us that Jesus was tempted in all things just as we are. Jesus can identify with us. He understands us. We can pour out our hearts to him. We can confess our deepest, ugliest struggles. He has fought against sin. He knows what we need. 
Now, I wish each one of you uh, owned and regularly read J.C. Ryle's expository thoughts on the gospel, because we could save time this morning. I could just say, volume one, page 27, you just, I'll say, oh, yes, that is a good one. Um, but since I'm not sure that you all read this uh, regularly, I'm going to have to quote him again. Uh, and, uh, and I quote him as he considers how the testing of Jesus is intended to, to encourage Christians who are tempted too. Are they ever tempted, Ryle asks, by Satan to distrust God's care and goodness? So was Jesus. Are they ever, let us say, are we ever tempted to presume on God's mercy? and run into danger without warrant. So also was Jesus. Are we ever tempted to commit one great private sin for the sake of some great seeming advantage? So also was Jesus. Are we ever tempted to listen to some misapplication of Scripture as an excuse for doing wrong? So also was Jesus. He is just the Savior that tempted people require. Fifth, we should be reminded from this passage that there's a difference between being tempted and and falling to temptation. That might be obvious to all of you, but it's not always obvious to some of us, I'm sure. Jesus was tempted, but he did not sin. Indeed, he could not sin. That he did not sin is seen everywhere, and it's stated in Hebrews. That he could not sin, we know, because he was not only the God-man, not only man, but the God-man, and God cannot sin. His struggle against temptation not only did succeed, it had to succeed. Now, a lot can be said on this topic, but here let me say that there needs to be, there ought to be a comfort and a distinction between, between being, being, feeling the force of a temptation and actually falling to temptation. I can try to illustrate what I'm talking about. There was a season when I traveled from Washington, D.C., where I used to live, uh, to, to New York City, uh, where, I, where I taught each week. And I learned by hard experience that one hallway in... Washington, D.C.'s Union Station, one hallway on the way to my platform, was filled with large, I'll call them problematic images that Satan could use to tempt me. And so I needed to choose a different route through the train station to get to my platform. And again, when I walked up a set of stairs each week in New York's Penn Station, I learned after my first time up the steps uh, that I ought not to glance to the right due to a, the placement of a magazine rack. Every time thereafter, when I reached the top of the staircase, I needed to look left. Now, each time I took one route instead of another, each time I looked left instead of right, the Holy Spirit was helping me to overcome an identifiable temptation. Praise God, when Satan tempts us, we do not always give in to temptation. I fall to temptation more often than I should, but it's not always. But here's my point. Satan is very clever, and he not only tempts us, but he tries to make us feel guilty simply because we know about the power of a temptation, because we face temptations and we feel its pull. He tells us 
that sites like this, polls like that, wouldn't really bother a better Christian. Wouldn't a stronger Christian not even need to think thoughts like that? Wouldn't even need to care about the route that he takes? Whether you look or don't look, Van Dixorn, you're a terrible Christian for even knowing there is that kind of temptation. What kind of a minister would even have a struggle like that? And you see, so even as I'm fighting a temptation, Satan already wants me to feel like a loser because I feel the force of the temptation. And this is what I'm saying. Jesus' experience in the wilderness reminds us that there's a difference between facing, maybe even seeing the compelling power of a temptation, and then resisting that temptation with the Holy Spirit's help. The very fact that we know it's there is enough for our oldest enemy to try and make us feel hopeless because he wants us to live in his shadow. When the Father calls us to live in the full sunshine of his smiling face, let us not be fooled by Satan and just believe we're already defeated just because we we know the temptation is there. Well, much more could be said. But perhaps that's enough to to summarize a few of the lessons that we can learn from this this account. Now, I said it's not enough to say that there's a moral to the story because there's so many lessons for us to learn. But it's also not enough to say there's a moral to the story because there's also an important backdrop to this account here in Matthew chapter 4 that we need to stand back and appreciate if we're to understand and appreciate these verses as much as we should. You see, as God designed it, this mysterious moment in the life of our Lord remains one of the most important connections between the New Testament and the Old. Let me try to explain. If you know the first gospel well, you'll know that the infant Jesus was rushed to Egypt for a time to escape the clutches of King Herod. Matthew also explains back in chapter 2 that this is a fulfillment of a prophecy in Hosea. Now, just as God's chosen son Israel came up out of Egypt, Hosea explains, so too God's son Jesus would come up out of Egypt. Now, Jesus coming up out of Egypt in Matthew 2 sets the stage for Jesus in the wilderness in Matthew chapter 4. Not only is Jesus like Israel in going down to Egypt and coming out of Egypt, he's like Israel in that he also was tested in the wilderness. You see, Jesus was reliving the life of Israel in a compacted or compressed form. We once had visitors to our home who had a huge pile of socks that they needed to fit into their little car. They were shipping them off to to the Ukraine. Uh, And so my wife gave them a vacuum bag. I'm sure you've seen a vacuum bag before. These plastic bags, they've got a nozzle in it. You can put all kinds of stuff in there and then you turn on the vacuum cleaner and it all gets sort of scrunched down. It's very compacted. Now that's not a great analogy 
I'll let me be the first to admit it. But, but in, some, in a somewhat similar way, the key moments in Israel's long history are shrunk down and compacted, relived in the life of Jesus. And if you read the Old Testament regularly and you know what is written, you'll spot some parallel lines running between Old Testament and New Testament events. The Israelites are in the wilderness. Jesus was in the wilderness. They spent 40 years there. Jesus spent 40 days there. They were tempted by hunger intermittently. Jesus was tempted by hunger constantly during this time. And you can see how these wilderness scenes belong together. Piecing these Old and New Testament events together, it's, it's, it's a bit like finding an old painting in your attic uh, that's, that's supposed to be a pair you recognize with the one that's hanging in your dining room. The two go together. And yet when you finally reunite these two scenes, you see not only the similarities but also the contrasts. The Israelites wanted God to give them food in the rocky desert. They almost demanded a miracle. Jesus was asked to turn stones to bread, but he refused. He would face hunger like the Israelites, but not complain, not demand a miracle, not even work a miracle in his own power. Israel was tested and failed. Sometimes they complained. Sometimes they did as they pleased and assumed that God would still help them anyway. Sometimes they demanded more now because they cared more about the immediate concerns of this world than they cared about the promises of what was to come. Jesus was tested and he resisted. He was tempted like Israel was, yet without sin, without complaint, without compromise. But if you know your Bible well, you'll know that epic temptations come in sets of three, not pairs of two. There's still another picture, if you will, at the very back of the attic. Only when we set that third portrait with the other two have we completely assembled the work of the master. What makes this third frame fit with the other two is not a similarity of scene, it's continuity in characters. You may already have noticed in the wilderness temptation of Jesus, the second Adam, that Satan is there right in the foreground. But in the wilderness temptation of, Jesus, of Israel, we know he's there, but we don't see him at all. But there's another temptation, isn't there? Another one for us to consider. It's the first in human history. The scene is different, but Satan is there once more, front and center as is the first Adam and his wife. In a garden, the first Adam and his wife were confronted by a temptation regarding provision, encouraged to think that God was not taking as good a care of them as he could, seeing that he was withholding from them something that was so appetizing. In that temptation, they were encouraged by Satan to presumption, assuming they could do the opposite of what God commanded and still come out okay. Ultimately, they gave themselves to perversion. I don't think that's too strong of a word. It might not be strong enough. They listened to the truth of God being mangled into a lie. 
They chose to follow the creature rather than the creator. They put Satan's word before God's and they made themselves the real authorities in their life as they chose to go their own way. And when Adam, whom one of the gospel writers also calls God's son, chose to twist the will of his father in heaven, he sinned and the world was plunged into sin with him. I mentioned it's not enough to simply point out the lessons that must be learned from Matthew 4 because there are connections that we need to see in Matthew 4. But the most important reason why we must move beyond what we could call the moral of the story is that there is a gospel to this story. In reading about the testing of God's son, Jesus, and then reflecting back on the testing of God's son, Israel, and God's son, Adam. There's a message that we must not miss. And so let me very briefly take take those temptations and, and look at them in their historic order. Adam was a representative man. And when he failed, our first parents, when they failed, a a kind of virus was unleashed on the human race that no one could escape, as we see all around us today. We see it in our own lives. We're corrupted. Left to ourselves, we all crash. After that, we only see failure repeated. Israel imitates or or replicates Adam's failures. And eventually, as Adam was exiled from the Garden, Garden of Eden, so too they were exiled from the land of Canaan. It seems that testing, failure, exile is the only pattern we'll ever see until in the opening pages of the New Testament we see another wilderness, another appearance of Satan, another test ordered by God. And here where every mere mortal has failed, there is one who succeeds. And of course, that's just the beginning Many of our Bibles, my Bible at least, says the temptation of Jesus, as if this were the only time that Satan assailed our Lord. But unlike the temptation of Adam, and very much like the temptation of Israel in the wilderness, for most of the rest of Christ's life, Satan recedes into the background. But we see his handiwork everywhere. The whole of Christ's life is one characterized by conflict, and adversity, and false accusation, the twisting of truth, and rejection, each carrying the signature of Satan himself. And what are we to learn from this? Well, of course, Christians are to see in Christ's resistance to Satan an example for ourselves. As one author has put it, Christians must not go for a temporal kingdom, which Jesus refused. They must not grab fulfillment now, which Jesus declined. They must not compromise with Satan, which Jesus rejected. They, we, are to use the Spirit's sword in the ongoing battle against the forces of evil. Now, that's true. But what I want you to see is, is that much more than seeing Jesus as an example, as important as that is, we must see him in this passage, as our substitute. All that he did was in our place and for our sakes. 
He came to face temptation as the last Adam. He came to be a new representative who would live, obey, and resist temptation in the way that the first Adam, in the way that all his descendants, in the way that we ourselves often fail to do. As our substitute, even here in Matthew 4, he was earning for us a righteousness, a standing which we don't deserve ourselves and could never acquire for ourselves. Jesus fought compromise so that his steadfastness could be credited to us when we lack courage. He resisted easy prestige and privilege so that his kingdom perspective could be imputed to us when we are worldly and short-sighted. He turned to his father for provision so that his confidence could be ascribed to us when we worry and are anxious. He carefully avoided presuming on his father's kindness so that his wisdom and holiness could be counted ours when we are foolish and careless. He despised the perverted twisting of priorities that put satanic suggestion at the same level as divine revelation. He resisted Satan so that all who trust in him completely will permanently find themselves forgiven for each and every time that we have given into the flesh and the world and the devil. Indeed, he does this even for those who trust him poorly. He is supplying the righteousness that comes to all justified sinners, no matter how weak their faith, all sinners who are united to Christ by faith. This is good news. There's good news in Jesus crushing the serpent's temptations underfoot. As I look back over these 11 verses with you, it seems that supernatural events are the ones that that most stand out. I mean, where else do we encounter Satan at one end of a passage and angels at the other? Where else does the most sinful of all creatures guide the sinless creator God from place to place? Where else do we read of a mountain where Jesus can see the world or a, con- or a conversation on some protrusion of the temple while priests and people mill about underneath unaware of what's going on overhead? And yet, and yet the most Remarkable feature of this chapter, of these 11 verses, may be just the thing that appears most natural. Jesus quoting Scripture. What could be more normal than that, right? But when you think about it, isn't it astonishing that after every assault, Jesus directs the attention of the devil to the book of Deuteronomy? I mean, this is amazing because as as Matthew Henry's commentary notes, Jesus himself is the eternal word and could have produced the mind of God without, without reference to, without recourse to the writings of Moses. And yet Christ is teaching us here something that we must notice. Who better than Jesus to not only know the scriptures, but its power and authority. Who better than the incarnate Word of God to commend the written Word of God? 
we sometimes don't take the Bible seriously enough. But it was enough for Jesus that it is written. That was the only argument that was needed for him. Is there something more profound, more clever or learned that we need for ourselves? Christianity's cultured despisers think that it's absurd for us to be guided by this old book. But it was an old book already when Jesus was walking on this earth. And yet he quoted the Scriptures as though the Bible properly applied is a sufficient guide for every twist and turn and even the most difficult of situations. I say properly applied because you read with me how Satan can misapply Scripture. He twists what is written. He takes a book that comes from God and tries to use it against God. So Scripture must be known and understood and applied properly. We have so many reasons, don't we, to hold the Scriptures tightly. Classic confessions of the Christian church Remind us that the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is either expressly or explicitly set down in Scripture or by thoughtful reasoning can be deduced from Scripture and from nowhere else. The way of salvation is so clearly taught in in one place or another place in this wonderful book that not only the learned but the unlearned can understand it. It's a book that speaks without error and with authority and with great clarity, and we can trust it infallibly. But of course, and much more importantly, the Bible speaks eloquently about itself. The psalmist says once once and again, this word is a light. The book of Proverbs tells us that the word of God is intended to give us certainty. The epistle So the Romans tells us that the Scriptures are intended for our comfort. 2 Timothy chapter 3 tells us the Scriptures are good for everything. Throughout the Scriptures, we're given any number of reasons why we should hold it dearly and trust it fully. But do you see? Do you see that in Matthew chapter 4, we are especially directed to the Scriptures as a comfort and help in times of temptation. One of the old Puritans once wrote that only Scripture is strong enough to support and bear us up in sad hours of temptation. One of the Protestant reformers once said, Christ uses Scripture as His shield. Those who voluntarily throw away that armor deserve to be strangled by Satan into whose hands they give themselves up unarmed. The Reformers sometimes put things strongly. I mentioned that we need to know how to deal with the devil. The way we know how to deal with him is to use the Scriptures, including this passage that tells us about how our Savior resisted him, how our Savior has overcome him on our behalf. It's because God's Word is so effective that Satan wants us to read it very little and then trust it even less. He wants us to be uncomfortable with the Bible. He wants us to airbrush the influence of the Scriptures out of our lives. He reminds us that these words are offensive or irrelevant to our unbelieving friends and neighbors. He wants us to set the Scriptures aside because he knows that the Bible 
and good Bible teaching is the life-giving power of God and the most effective weapon in the Holy Spirit's arsenal. And the most important thing that the Bible has to say to us this morning in the fight against temptation is that Jesus himself has already dealt the death blow. Our enemy wants us to feel hopeless about sin. The Bible tells us that Jesus has taken sin's penalty and destroyed its final power and that he has a victory over Satan that is assured. I'm a historian, and historians uh, like to argue about different events in history. One of the events that we like to argue about is the turning point of World War II. When did it happen? Was it the events in Africa? Is, is it the events in Russia? I think maybe the Battle of Leningrad is the point at which the Axis powers had so extended themselves, had, had so kind of had such long supply lines, and were fighting on so many fronts that they just couldn't win anymore. Well, that's a little bit like the Christian life. The battle continues. But much more than any historian can assure you about World War II, with much more great, great confidence, I can say, the battle continues, but the war is won. There is no way for Satan to come out on top. And so you are encouraged this morning to continue the fight, to resist Satan, to push back against temptation, not in a spirit of hopelessness, but in a spirit of victory, of confidence, knowing who Christ is, knowing what he has done, knowing that victory is assured. I said at one point that to understand Matthew chapter 4, we need to have not one but three pictures in view. But as I think aloud with you about Christ's victory, there are other sights that come to mind. It's as if we've been spending half an hour or so uh, looking at only one wall in a gallery. But step back around you, and step back and, and look around you, and you'll, you'll see that the, you'll see other scenes that the Holy Spirit has assembled in this, in this uh, special exhibit of, of saving revelation. Look with me at the end of Christ's ministry. There we see another temptation. Scripture presents before our eyes the Garden of Gethsemane with our Savior dreading the cup of wrath which he was about to drink down to its dregs. We see him again in another scene, hanging on his cross, a spiritual wilderness of sorts where he was more alone than he had ever been in his whole life. And the crowds around him, mocking him, testing him. But thankfully, even that does not offer the full panorama because after a dark portrait of a tomb, we see a scene of dazzling glory of angels who are blinding the guards of a grave that is suddenly empty. And there's more. There's a long scene that begins at Pentecost and stretches the full length of the gallery. And in this scene, you see the apostles and preachers. If we look beyond it, we see the, the praying men and women 
and children of the Middle Ages. We see the great reformers. And if you look closely, you'll even see insignificant people like you and me, all of us called to resist temptation, all of us called to be part of a society that shows all the kingdoms of the world God's glory, all of us called to live by what is written. And at the end is a final scene. There we see Satan bound and banished never to tempt again. There we see the Son of God with angels around him and the world falling down before him. There we see at last the church of Christ brought into its glory. There we glimpse the elect from every nation joining with those whose rest is one, finally doing to perfection what we have always only partly done. And there we will worship the Lord our God and him only will we serve. It's a glorious sight, almost too good to be true. So how do we know that it is? Because it is written. Let us pray. Father, equip us, we ask, to fight temptation by trusting in the example and even more in the work of our Savior who has overcome all. Teach us to know the Scriptures, to use wisely what is written for our defense and for the glory of your name and kingdom. We ask this, and then we are emboldened to ask even more in spite of our weakness and the weakness of others whom we love. We pray that your word and its power would continue to increase that the number of disciples would be multiplied greatly everywhere, and that many who have struggles like our own would become obedient to the faith. We pray that you would fill us with your grace and power so that no one will be able to withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which we speak. And in all of this, may your name be lifted high above us as we ourselves recede into the crowd of your worshipers. It is in Jesus' name that we ask these things. Amen.